So Nathan Stone on the show with me today. I am a big fan of your podcast, The War Games Orchard. How are you doing today, Nathan? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting. I just love meeting people in this hobby and it's something that I've been able to do so much more since I started the podcast and it's led me to some really cool friendships over the way and all sorts of neat conversations so I'm just super pleased that you'd have me on the podcast today. Yeah, podcasting is one of the funny things where I like I feel like I know you really well because I've listened to you so much. Whereas you'll probably be thinking, like, who's this guy? <laughs> um, you've accompanied me on many a long painting marathon with it with the show, so I really do enjoy it. So, um, I just uh, to to give the listener a quick heads up. What's your like? What's your elevator pitch of the the Ward Games Orchard podcasting community? So the Ward Games Orchard is a weird little show. I'm just going to start off with that. It's a bit of a Warhammer variety show. And it started off during lockdown, like a lot of projects for people. And what we wanted to do was talk mostly about Warhammer Fantasy, our gaming group. And I really wanted to do some retrospectives. There's a certain type of podcast that I really wanted to listen to that just didn't exist. And that was something that was more dedicated towards the history of Warhammer, Warhammer 40k and and surrounding games. And I saw this 30 plus year history and these evolutions of rules of lore of units that I just really wanted to explore in there. There was no one doing it, or at least no one that I've found. And I really apologize if someone's been doing this for years. And I thought, wow, what a what a great thing to to dive into. I've got this free time because of lockdown. And it's been really tremendous. We've covered all sorts of topics in both Warhammer and 40k, lore rules, those kind of evolutions. We talk a little bit about the old world whenever news comes out about that and it's really a show that is just a love letter i think to 30 years of miniature wargaming and specifically warhammer fantasy but also 40k i just i can't get this stuff out of my head so i like to put it in other people's heads i guess (laughs) is the best way i could describe that so I reckon, you know, based on like the conversations you've had on the show, I reckon we're of a, a similar age. And I'm wondering, because this is very common and it's it's certainly the case with me, I went through a long period out with the hobby. And I think you've mentioned this before that you either did or you didn't. So what what, what was it? You know, have you stuck with it throughout? I have to an extent. I think it's it's waxed and waned like the tides. I've never been completely out. I've never been completely dry since I, I initially jumped in as a kid. But of course, there are times in your life where you're just too busy to do a lot. And I never really stopped paying attention, I guess, even those kind of drier years where I wasn't playing regularly and I was only painting occasionally. You know, I would still go and I would read some uh novels or something from from black library or i would uh you know i'd paint occasionally that kind of thing i think the the real nadir of my hobby was probably the same for a lot of people which is kind of college and university you know there's there's classes there's girls there's all sorts of things to distract you and uh, i was i'm very good at distracting myself in general so if i have actual distractions then i'm totally hopeless 
but yeah, I, I think for the most part, I've I've stuck with this with this silly hobby pretty much since I was nine years old. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's funny, you know, I, I went through like my long hobby exile from my writing, you know, age, age, maybe a uh, 16. And I probably came back in at aged. I'm 30. I'm a, I, I could never remember <laughs> if I'm 37 or 38. I think I'm 37. Uh, I'm 37. So I came back in at about 34, 35 years old. Um, and it, yeah, like you say, I was reading... I always kind of read the Black Library stuff still. I didn't know about what happened with Warhammer in the old world. I didn't know any of that. And it was always comforting to me to 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 know that at any point throughout that long exile, you know, I could just go in a games workshop and I just thought things were, were as they were. Um, and I'd never given that a whole lot of conscious thought about the, the aesthetics and the styles and the vibes back then. So then when I found out, you know, everything that had happened, listening to content like yourselves, I didn't realize how nostalgic it actually was. So, like the the term that you the, you use a lot is hero hammer, and I, I you know I had to kind of find out what that meant. So, um, hero hammer. How would how would you how would you kind of define hero hammer, and what's so compelling about it? Hero hammer was, I think, more than just the editions where it ran. It was a whole kind of games design philosophy plus an aesthetic for games workshop and it ran i i think you could kindly put it at running through the 90s basically for uh games workshops games and the first thing that you you kind of notice about this aesthetic if you go back and look at it is it's very bright it's very very cartoony there's a lot there that is indicative of almost if you think of like 80s cartoons a little bit where they're bright and they're colorful, they're over the top. There's a lot there. You have big personalities, larger than life characters. And that's kind of what defined the Hero Hammer aesthetic. And then the name, of course, comes from the fact that in both Warhammer and to a lesser extent, Warhammer 40k, your heroes really were the stars of the show. They were the main actors. You could have a hero that could very easily uh, destroy an entire regiment of lesser troops and not break a sweat. And Games Workshop really got away from that uh, aesthetic as well as the the game's design philosophy where the heroes were big and powerful in around 1998 to, to kind of going forward. And so it, it was kind of a term that was coined in retrospect. You know, when, when we played it in the 90s, it was just Warhammer. And then looking back at it, you're like, oh, yeah, those heroes were nuts. They were out of control. And so it's it's a real term of endearment, I think, for a lot of the community that enjoys those particular eras. And at the same time, it kind of sums up the way that the, the game played as well. I think there's just if you grew up with it, if you know, like like us who would have been kind of kids growing up in the 90s it kind of captured you and it captured, I think a lot of people in the community, this, this style, this feel, and we've never seen it since because of the, the evolution and the way that the games progressed and then changed. It was a, a real uh, unique era in time. And it's, it's something that's really special to me. And I think it's special to a lot of people out there. And I think that's why there's been, especially over the last couple of years where people have had time to kind of revisit, stuff from their childhood 
there's been this kind of big swell of people jumping back in and playing these games this second edition 40k fourth fifth edition warhammer fantasy and it's it's really cool to see yeah i've got a i've got a big pile of white dwarves that i found at my parents attic so i think they run from maybe 1993 to 1998 or nine um looking through them some beautiful you know like i say the aesthetic um which i never gave much thought to at the time but now looking back and compared to what we have now so yeah you make a great point about 80s cartoons so looking through some of these photos you know we've got skeletons they've all got red spears which which is really (laughs) funny like if you're pulling um dead bodies out the earth you know they're going to have all rusty weapons broken stuff but i just like the fact that you know the necromancers gave them nice matching painted spears and he's painted all their spear shafts all red and it's really clean and nice and uniformed. Um, why? And then when we look at 40K as well, I mean, you had, um, you know, gene stealers and space marines, they're fighting out on this beautiful green grass, nice blue sky. It looked um, picturesque. You know, it looked like a, a sort of holiday brochure. Um, why do you think Games Workshop moved away from that? Because at, at some point they must have taken a stylistic decision to to kind of move on from that didn't they yeah it was something that in the era you could kind of watch happen during the later 90s and the the big catalyst for it was the third edition of warhammer 40,000 this stylistically was night and day from where they had been warhammer 40k second edition is so bright it's so colorful like you say everyone fights in beautiful countrysides and it's uh it's it's a really striking aesthetic but they they toned it down it got darker it got grittier it got more extreme if you want to use that term i think games workshop wasn't i don't think this was a decision made in a vacuum. I think they were subject to the same forces that were prevalent in the 90s, which was as time progressed, things did get we we got more extreme, I guess, in in terms of, you know, marketing. Things ended up being, you know, they they got more violent, more visceral. And I I don't think that Games Workshop was immune to to kind of following those trends. But I also think it was the fact that this was a hobby that was kind of growing and maturing and, and people got into it. And I, I think the the consumer of the era maybe saw some of those things that I loved as a kid, the the bright, the colorful, the, this red period where, yeah, there was just everything was gorgeous, no matter you know how dirty it probably should have been. And they said, well, you know, this is kind of cartoony. Maybe it's for kids. And I think Games Workshop did want to get away from that a little bit. I think they really kind of took that hard left turn and decided most of our consumers are adults because this is a a game that requires a lot of patience. You know, you got to build the models, paint the models, play with them. And I think they they wanted to kind of capture that that new era's look and feel where everything was just a little bit grimier, a little bit grittier, darker. And that was kind of the birth of this grim dark that we've had ever since. Both 40K of course is is famous for it, right? It's in the grim darkness of the 41st millennia. But Warhammer Fantasy did it too and honestly I think did it a little bit darker and scarier than than 40K did when 6th edition came out. It's 
it, I mean, it's the kind of thing we can only speculate on, but I, I do think that they were following larger trends rather than necessarily just going it on their own because this was the new uh, philosophy that they had. Do you do you buy and play um, up to date GW stuff? I don't. Um, it's something that I, I kind of will dip my toe in every now and then. It's hard to escape, I guess, Games Workshop. And before I met my current gaming group, so the the guys at the the Warhammer Orchard, I just figured that if I was gonna get games in, I was gonna kind of have to keep up. You almost feel like you're forced to do it, right? If you're not, if you've not got that community, if you're just looking for people to play tabletop games with, it can be uh, a big kind of push for you to to keep up with whatever the latest edition is. I do have models from a few from Age of Sigmar and a few from modern day 40k. But now that I have a gaming group that plays the editions that I like, 5th and 6th edition fantasy, 2nd ed 40k, I haven't touched them. I really haven't. And I don't miss it either. I, I think I've found my happy place. And I think that's important for a lot of people in the hobby. It's so easy to get sucked into this modern trend of new releases all the time you know keeping up with metas keeping up with the latest and greatest but i think when you kind of step back from that and you're just like well what did i actually enjoy what did i actually like doing and what am i trying to recreate through playing these games so i have a, an ultramarines army of the the current make the big primaris guys and I had painted them up in the the candy coated second edition paint scheme because it's always been my favorite. And I, I've been looking at them and I'm like, well, I mean, they look pretty good, but I kind of just wish they were the old tactical Marines from second edition. And I, I look at all of the stuff nowadays and I'm, I'm just like, boy, I, I wish it was smaller and, and simpler. And then I'm just wishing it was all models from the 90s and early aughts. And if I'm going to do that, why am I trying to keep up? Why am I trying to do any of these things when I can just scour the secondary markets, look for trades and and build the collections that I wanted to build as a kid? And now I have the means to do that. And I have people who I can play with who will play with me in the the games that I want to play. And it's so freeing because now the only things that I look for for my collection are, are models that I love and that I, I think are the the types of things that I like, the old metal models, those kind of things. They're smaller and they're simpler. They're not over-designed. And I just love that freedom to say, I, I don't have to care what Games Workshop does. I don't have to care about any of it. I can just play the things the games that i love and if i don't like a rule i can talk to my opponent i can just change it you know we've changed so many things in our little group just to make the games better and so we've got our own little not even meta but just sort of rule set that we use and it's it's really just nice it's it's so much fun and it's it's easily the most fun i've had in the miniature wargaming hobby and it's also so cheap because I only find things that, you know, I'm really going to value now instead of having to worry about, you know, what is the latest and greatest unit. 
although I wasn't, you know, conscious of it at the time, I think it was about 2015 that the old world was blown up. Is that right? 2015? Yes. Yeah. It was, I guess, the spring 2015. And then the summer was the original launch of Age of Sigmar. So at that point, from what I gather, you know, some folks like yourself decided, well, these games still exist. You know, the game's not dead to me. I'm going to keep playing it. Other people, you know, threw the toys out the pram and said, well, that's the game ruined. I'm off. Um, and then some people uh, went over, to, you know, a game like Kings of War. Were you, ever, were you ever tempted with Kings of War? I have played Kings of War. Uh, I've played a few games. Actually, that's how this whole Warhammer Orchard thing got started was... There was a, a guy who was looking for Kings of War players in Halifax, and I had never played it before, but I knew it was kind of a Warhammer type of game, and I knew I had models that I could easily proxy. So I uh, I met him. We played a game. I met uh, my friend Scott, who is now one of the co-hosts for the show, and we played a game. And during that game, we kind of talked about man like you know this is fun this is really good but i miss that granularity of warhammer i miss you know designing your own characters and i miss the the little bits of lore and and the units that are missing from kings of war that are in warhammer and that kind of thing just the differences in the way the games play and yes that's how we we got back playing warhammer but i think kings of war is fantastic i think it's a really good game it's not necessarily my type of game it's much more competitively minded and and not that you can't play it casually but it's it's designed from the ground up to be quite balanced and things are kind of zoomed out from warhammer fantasy where you use units in just big blocks and of course you don't remove models so you only remove the unit when it's it's fled or destroyed and those kind of things make for a much quicker game, which is really nice. And you can have hundreds and hundreds of models on the tabletop, but it just doesn't dig down quite enough for me. And I think that's just a personal choice. There are so many incredible games, though, out there right now. We're really living in probably the, the best golden age of wargaming right now. And things like 3D printing becoming more and more prevalent and, and useful and accessible is going to just totally democratize the uh, the wargaming landscape. So like I, I feel like we're the proletariat and we've seized the means of production for <laughs> miniatures at this point with with stuff like three D printing. And I see communities like Warmaster that have just jumped in headfirst and they've got beautiful sculpts, incredible things for uh, you know facsimiles for things that Games Workshop used to produce and and armies that they never produced. And it's so incredible to to watch all of these things grow and and mature. Um, on the subject of Kings of War, Mantic, my God, they have come so far in the last decade or so. Their sculpts are looking really, really good. You know, I, I really am excited to see where Kings of War goes in the future. I love it for miniatures for Warhammer. If you're going to get into that, or just play the game, like I'm, it's it's one of those games that it's it's not. Certainly my preference is to play Warhammer, but I would play Kings of War again in a heartbeat if, you know, if I if I had uh, regular opponents for it. Yeah, I think I've seen recently they've got a Halfling army or at least part of a Halfling army out and it looks pretty cool. Um, miniatures wise, how so how do you go about getting your miniatures? Because a lot of the stuff that you 
presumably want is is going to be on eBay for quite expensive prices. So how how do you put these um, armies together that you're collecting? Honestly, it's a question of time in terms of patience and persistence for this. A lot of things go on eBay for ridiculous prices. And those things, I, I don't touch them. I, I don't have the budget to just spend whatever money I want on old miniatures. But what I found is kind of a, a fun thing to do. And I, I think a lot of gamers in my situation probably do the same thing is we just kind of window shop a lot on eBay. So you look on the secondary markets. I've also found Facebook marketplaces to be really, really good for that. There's all sorts of uh, trading groups. There's old hammer and middle hammer trading groups that you can find great stuff on and for less kind of scalper prices than eBay. I guess the the big thing is just diversify where you're looking and how you're looking and be patient with it because things do come up and I've missed on great deals, but I've also gotten great deals because I was willing to say, no, I'm going to wait for, you know, this model or, or this unit to come down to a more reasonable price range. I'm just going to keep my eye on things. And I think if you're doing it that way, you can actually make a pretty good force for not too expensive, especially if, you know, you're looking like me for models from a certain era. Some things, of course, are just so rare, you're never going to find them for less than, you know, $100, $200. And you just either have to live with that or decide that it's not for you. There's many, many models that I would love to have that are just sadly out of my price range. I guess the other thing that you can do as well is nowadays between people making great 3D prints that are evocative of the Hero Hammer aesthetic or whatever aesthetic you like, and the wealth of miniature companies out there, there are a lot of really good options for getting that sort of aesthetic that may be just a little bit different. So the one that I like to plug is Nightmare Miniatures. And yeah, I love them. Yeah, yeah. They do a fantastic real old hammer aesthetic, kind of third ed fantasy, rogue trader, fantastic stuff. Really, really cool looking. And yeah, it's honestly, if you make it part of your hobby a little bit, like if you if you enjoy that hunt, it can be really rewarding to find those miniatures and then find them for a good price. And you get really excited about it. My group on Facebook we have various Warhammer chats and and in one of them, we're always posting like our, our little finds and things that, that we've uh, found on, on either eBay or various marketplaces around the internet. Yeah. The, the nightmare uh, range is brilliant. Um, that was, I think the first time I blew a, a big chunk of money on my return to the hobby. It was, it was on the nightmare catalog. Um, some of the other ones that I've discovered, Die Hard, um, C9, C, CP9. Um, I made a big list of them on the site. I'll put that put link in the show notes. But they're, they're, yeah, like you say, there's a lot of these companies out there that are making very nostalgic looking miniatures and they fit right into these these armies, don't they? They really do, yeah. Um, let's talk a wee bit about, because uh, again, like well, you're, so you're, you're a content creator as well as a hobbyist. Both these things require quite a lot of time. You obviously put vast amount of research and work into creating your content. You've still got to actually do the, the hobby that you're talking about. Do you 
I'm quite fascinated with this idea of seasonal hobbying, um, especially you know in the, in the summer. I personally, I, I don't really like being indoors, and that leads to me just not having any time to to do things like painting and gaming. Um, do you kind of do, does your hobby and remain on an even keel throughout the year, or do you go through these sort of seasonal periods yourself? Oh heavens, no, no, there is no even keel. It is a roller coaster. My hobby, I will. And I've always done this. And even when I had, you know, all the time in the world when I was in high school and that kind of thing to to really just pour into the hobby, because I certainly wasn't going to do my homework, I would go in fits and starts. I still go in fits and starts. So I will get a tremendous amount of motivation over the course of two or three weeks, and I will paint up whole regiments, uh, you know, characters, uh, five, six hundred points worth of stuff. And then I'll crash and then I won't touch a paintbrush for a couple of weeks and then it'll happen again. Sometimes it's a little bit more even than that. Right now, I've been picking away at some second edition Eldar and I've been doing pretty well with that. I've been putting in probably six, seven, maybe eight hours so a, a week kind of thing. So, you know, just just in my off time, I find and I'm, I'm like you in the summer, if it's nice. I can't really concentrate on being inside. There's no, I, I'd rather be out doing things or just anything, right? Like just sitting around painting is, is not the most exciting thing in, in the nice weather. I think though, I, I don't think that's a problem though. And I think that's because this is really, it's it's a leisure activity and you should only do leisure activities when they're going to to bring you some joy or some relaxation or they're going to help you kind of wind down after a hard day. I, I'm the same way with a lot of my other hobbies where I'll go in fits and starts. I'm a very casual video gamer. I, I play maybe a couple of times a month. Like I'm, I'm really, really lapsed. I, I used to be bigger uh, into it when I was uh, younger, but every now and then like the mood kind of takes you. And I've and I've what I've learned is following those moods i think you'll actually get more done or more that you'll be happy with i i can only really do these things when i've got that passion for it and i really only should because otherwise it, it kind of turns into work and i i don't feel like that i really really envy the people who are even keel hobbyists like they they sit down they've got a couple hours a night or something and because they get way more done than i do but at the same time, I've never really stressed out about it. I, I'm not the kind of person who, for my hobbies, is ultra competitive. And what I mean by that is I don't go and look at a lot of painting tutorials on YouTube to try and, you know, get my my painting better and better. I just kind of paint what I like and I paint it how I like it. And I've improved over the the span of 20 some odd years in this hobby, but there are people who have been painting for less than a year that I think are better than me. Uh, at least that's what Instagram keeps telling me. And <laughs> so what I think it is, is for, for different folks, it, it's going to be a little bit different. Some people really have that drive to improve and some people really have that drive to, to get a lot done and, and be really efficient and, uh, get that sort of habit formed for painting and for building and for hobbying. That's not me though. I, I just, I can't do things that I, I don't want to do. My brain is not built like that. 
I, I will just I will procrastinate about doing leisure activities and then that just gets silly. So, yeah, I guess to to answer the question, I just kind of do what I want with the hobby now. And a lot of times that is painting and that is getting stuff done. But a lot of times that is just, you know, reading some lore or, or preparing for an episode or, or something like that. Yeah, it's a funny one with me because I, I have had uh, periods where I've thought, you know, I, I do want to get some painting done tonight. I really can't be bothered, but I'll kind of force myself to start. And once I start and get a podcast on maybe your own one, you know, I, I do enjoy it. And I'm glad that I made that little effort to get over that hump. But what I kind of push back on, and I've experienced this a lot, you know, I do a bit of writing as well. And it's the same in the writing world. A lot of people that are writers will advise you you know you've got to write every day this is the advice that's always repeated and i see that again you know in this hobby where it's you've got to paint every day even if it's 10 minutes you've got to paint every day and i think well do you you know <laughs> um you know is it not fine just to, and i suppose like you've mentioned it depends on your motivation does it like if you want if you want to win the golden demon yeah you probably do have to paint every day but for most people like they just want to chill out and have some fun don't they absolutely and it's a real, I think, question of how seriously do you take this hobby? And some people do take it very seriously. They are wanting to win those painting contests. They, are, they you know, they do want to place well in tournaments and they, they take it quite seriously. And it's just not that kind of thing for me. It's always been a this is so silly and it's fun and I love it. And I just want to it's like. Uh, the the way I always try and describe it is that Warhammer and 40k and this whole thing is is like this big ocean, right? So some people are into the the building aspect and creating neat conversions and building their own models out of bits, and some people are really into painting and getting really good at that. And some people are into the gaming, or and some people are into the peripheral stuff, the novels, the video games. But it is this this giant sea, and I'm too scatterbrained to do any of one of those things to the the degree that that some people are i just want to swim in the ocean and like see everything i just i just want to flitter from place to place and and have fun with it and that's that's all i ask from the hobby and and because of that it, it suits me very well but i think it's totally legitimate that if you're going to if you're going to take it seriously if you really want to improve maybe you yeah maybe you do do it every day but i think for most people that's a bit excessive. I don't think you need to do that. I don't think you need to do anything every single day. Like even if you take it seriously, um, I, I was a competitive runner. I'm still a competitive runner. There just hasn't been any runs in a long time. And for a while, I was training every day. I was I was training well six days a week plus one rest day, and uh, I, I almost ran myself into the ground. Like I almost crippled myself doing it. And because of that, I was forced to to take some time off and and just I, I was in a walking boot. There was no running for me. I could barely walk. And what I learned from that, though, was that I could diversify my training a little bit. I ended up getting into, you know, rest resistance training, strength training. I ended up getting better overall health because I, I took a break. And I mean, that's a little bit more dramatic i think than what can happen with the hobby but i the hobby burnout i mean we all get hobby burnout you know and i think you just risk that more and more 
the the more you push yourself and the more you're just like no i have to get this done i have to get this army i have to get this painted i gotta spend x amount of time i mean just relax it's it's fun it should just be fun <laughs> talking a wee bit about painting there so do, do you do you have like when you're about to paint a model do you have like a a process you know do you look over it and do you plan out what you're going to do or are you more just a paints on the table guy you know just see how it goes like how do you sort of approach it I think most of the time I'm a paints on the table guy. I look at the model and I've got a general idea. I usually have a color scheme in mind. I try and go for three colors. It's something that I learned from a white dwarf a million years ago. And it was it was a painting article. It was like kind of painting for for average people articles. And it was talking about like have, having three kind of main colors on your model and then kind of filling in with with other little ones. I really like limited palettes as far as that goes. I think it's it's a good way to to get things done a little bit quicker, but it also I think a lot of people get lost in the details of models. And if you're not painting for competition, if you're just painting to, to get things on the table and you want them to look good, you got to remember that you you want it to look striking from 3 to 5 feet away. You know, choosing a, a limited palette can really bring that out. And so I, I kind of have things that I keep in mind when I'm painting, but I just choose I, most of the time I'm just painting. However, I kind of feel that the the unit or something should look now the one place where I will kind of uh, skew from that is if I'm painting something to look like the models that that games workshop presented so for this eldar second edition army that i'm working on right now i am kind of painting them to the book for the the bile tan force and i'm doing all the aspect warriors and i don't sweat getting everything exactly i just want to evoke the look of that second edition force uh so those are kind of the the two ways that i do it i think though that painting I, i'm not a builder I, I like monopose models which i think is is kind of left over from that hero hammer era where a lot more was monopose but I, I think in painting is where you can find just some incredible creativity. So I, I'm always trying to to not so much push myself, but just use a different range of paints for each force that I'm doing. So they all look a little bit different and a little bit unique. Do you use the, the contrast paints? The new contrast, I say new, they've been out a couple of years now. <laughs> they do feel still really new. I do. I have a couple. I use them basically as thicker washes, I guess, if that makes sense. I don't use it like the contrast method with with doing the whole uh, undercoating it and wraith bone and then, you know, going over that. I find that they're they're good. They're they're fine for certain things. Uh, I like them for kind of basing or putting shades on on skin tones for orcs and humans and that kind of thing. Other than that, though, I, I don't have a lot of time for them i have a huge paint collection and i had a huge paint collection by the time contrast came out and i just haven't really seen the need to get into them too much do you still have some of the old uh, i'm looking over at my, my painting desk there the white topped um caps you know the goblin greens and stuff i have a couple of them i have this incredible metallic blue which the name escapes me right now and i have an old blood red and that blood red is running on fumes, unfortunately. It's one of those things where I think I could do like two models in it <laughs> and then I'd be out. Uh, I do have a few of the ones from the the twist, 
top days uh the ones that came out kind of right after that as well although those ones never held up as well those those white top ones man they would seal paint in just forever love those i I still miss them i've i found a batch of them when i found those white dwarfs and they're still perfect and the smell as well the the smell you don't get that it's probably um carcinogenic but you know i could sit and and sniff them and you know it takes me back to to the 90s um love those paints yeah Mm-hmm. absolutely they're they're fantastic some of those old modeling products right the old flock and things were just you 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 saw those and and you you had them for years and god i wish i i knew what what happened to mine i used to have big you know big bags of those those old modeling supplies that games workshop sold our question of the month for may 2024 is what rules have you created or adapted to improve your favorite gaming system this might be a homebrew rule or something you've ported over from another game. The point is, you tried it, it worked well, and you kept on using it. Head on over to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail to submit your answer. That's bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I've, I, there's there's a lot of stuff, you know, I found, I found a lot of stuff in my parents attic but there's a lot of stuff just not there and uh you know probably worth a fortune these days um you know a lot of stuff that i think that i had and and it's just not there so i don't know what happened probably thrown out um which kind of brings me so i gave you a heads up on this question nathan i wanted to ask (laughs) it so um and and this is something that maybe folks our generation always give a wee bit of thought to but you know you get a time machine and uh, obviously you you could go anywhere in history but what you want to do you want to take that time machine and you want to go back to the the mid to late 90s and visit a games workshop store that's what you would do um so you've got a hundred dollars um in your pocket and uh, you're in this shop it's all red you know the the colors and everything the bright colors uh, the guy's really enthusiastic that works in there as they always are um (laughs) So you go in there, um, what sort of stuff's going to be on your shopping list? Uh, this was hard. This was really hard. And the worst part was that I've thought about this before. I think this is something that we all kind of just daydream about every now and then. It's like, if you could go back in time. And in my daydreams, I never had a budget. It was just like, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking my credit card and I'm, I'm coming out when my credit card is full. But $100 is an interesting amount for this exercise. And it's a bit of a devil's kind of bargain because I I thought the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I'm never going to be fully satisfied. There's always going to be something that I'll have wished that I would have gotten and some kind of switch that I'd have made. But I, I have an answer for you. And this is what I would do with $100. I would go... And I'm assuming this is kind of a magical games workshop where they just kind of have everything from that era. So what I'm picking out is every uh, unique blister of chaos champions that I can find. And the reason for that is some of, I think, the absolute finest single models of all time were those wonderful chaos champions. They spanned in design from third to kind of fourth and into fifth so you really got a lot of the the early history of warhammer kind of uh in, enshrined in these models and they were all so unique they all had 
really bizarre aspects to them. But then there were some that were just kind of really uh, gnarly looking chaos warriors as well. So I would pick out probably seven or so blisters. I think they used to come in packs of two. So that should get me most of that range there. And I'm saving a few dollars for a couple of blisters if I can find them. The first one is the classic Chaos Dwarf Lord on foot. It was the guy with two back banners. And the reason for that is I just always wanted to paint that model. And banners are my weakness. I love a good banner, especially the old paper banners. I I love making them. I love putting them on my models. And I would just love to have him to to paint him up and, and put him on a shelf somewhere. And I think probably with the taxes, I, I'm out of money by that point. But if I'm not, I'll pick up a, a Chaos Dwarf Sorcerer to to go with him to sit on a shelf somewhere. For me, though, the, the highlight is definitely those Chaos Warriors. There's so much in that era. I don't think you can make a wrong decision. But for me to to go back in time, those warriors are just... They are Warhammer for me. I, I, I'm a servant of Chaos at heart. And everything about them there those designs are still being are still influencing designers to this day when games workshop created their their new line of chaos warriors for age of sigmar there was direct callbacks to some of those champions which i I really enjoyed and i think they are they are everything that i think when i think warhammer and even 40k because i mean the first space marines were we're basically just knock off chaos warriors in, in space. So those that's, that's my answer. I would absolutely get out of that store and immediately be like, Oh no, I should have, you know, I should have picked out this. I should have picked up this other thing. Uh, and I would be thinking about it for the rest of my life, but I think I could be reasonably happy with those choices. Big thanks to Nathan there for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Be sure to check out his own podcast, The War Games Orchard, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast too. You could do that, you could find all the links on how to do that over at the website, bedroombattlefields.com slash podcast. That's bedroombattlefields.com slash podcast.